you have your Bibles, be opening them to Isaiah chapter 40. And in just a few moments, our message will be coming from that, that passage. Be opening your Bibles or opening your uh, devices, however you have access to, uh, to Scripture. I want to remind everyone uh, that Overflow Sunday is coming up just in a few weeks. And if you're new to us or if you're a guest, Overflow is this wonderful day. Um, we had a homecoming celebration for years. And back a few years ago, we said, uh, let's kind of keep that beautiful tradition and add some new things to it. And so uh, November the 3rd is, is Overflow. We always invite in a guest preacher. And this year, our guest preacher is David Skidmore. It's always good to hear from another voice. And so he will be with us. Uh, our offering will not uh, be that Sunday. Typically, we have a vision offering that will be in December so this year to be a little different we'll have the guest speaker guest preacher uh, wonderful time of celebration one service um, also want to remind you next Sunday morning um, we're going to be having a guest worship leader uh, Stephen Maxwell will be with us from the North Atlanta Church and so he'll be uh, leading worship that week so a lot of wonderful exciting things uh, coming up the next few Sunday mornings in our message series, we said that beginning in chapter 40 in Isaiah, there's really a, a shift in that uh, passage, in that book. Isaiah, much like John in the book of Revelation, uh, looks into the future. And it's a time when the Jews in Isaiah 40 are, are languishing in Babylonian exile. And in essence, from 40 on, he's saying to them, well, God, God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten you. you. And he speaks tenderly to them. And I love the movement from Isaiah 40 from verse 1 to the very end of the chapter. Because in the first few verses, he uses very warm language. He uses the word comfort, comfort my people. And at the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, uh, he uses the word hope. It's really comfort and hope. We see that movement all through Isaiah chapter 40. And every single one of us need a sense of hope, don't we? And the book of Isaiah really offers us that sense of hope, and chapter 40, I think, in particular, and that's one of the reasons we've been spending some time in Isaiah chapter 40. Just this week, I was talking with someone from our church, and this person said to me, you know, Kevin, said, you know, there's a lot of struggle we experience all through the week. The week is difficult, but when we gather on Sunday and we begin a brand new week as a church, we're reminded that God will set things right, and we're reminded that God is still on the throne. And I really believe that. And as we've read through the book of Isaiah, we've, Isaiah chapter 40, we've noticed a, uh, a number of important themes. Uh, for instance, we, one week we looked at the glory of God, that is, God's manifest presence. And we said that, that ultimately, that glory is seen in Jesus, that Jesus is, is the greatest, uh, really, it's the personification of glory. John says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And one Sunday morning we talked about the Word of God. And we said the Word of God is enduring and lasting. Though the grass withers and the flowers may, may fall, the Word of God endures forever. And you may recall we said in that sermon that if you get into the Word of God, the God of the Word gets into you. And then we talked about the power of God. 
and how we have access to God's power by faith. And we defined faith in that sermon. We said faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Now, we know God is telling the truth, but faith is when we act like God is telling the truth. It's not merely believing the truth or say we believe the truth. No, no, faith is more than that. It's, it's action. Faith is acting on God's truth. It's acting like what, what God is saying, us, saying to us is the truth. And then last Sunday morning, Wilson had a marvelous sermon where he talked about uh, the compassion of God. And I especially like in Isaiah chapter 40 how you have one verse about the power of God sitting right next to that verse about the compassion of God. In verse 10, we see God is powerful. In verse 11, God is pictured as this shepherd who carries the sheep close to his heart. So right in those two verses, you have something about the power of God and the compassion of God. And today, as, as David said so well, we're going to talk about the majesty of God. When you hear the word majesty, what comes to your mind? Other words like majestic or awe-inspiring or beautiful. As Barry led us so effectively just a moment ago, we gather to worship his majesty. And when I think of the word majesty, I think of a king sitting on a throne. And right in the middle of the passage we read just a moment ago in verse 22, it says about God, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And I love how David talked about that in Isaiah chapter 55, God is described as, as one who, who sits on his throne and the earth is his footstool. What an apt picture. Here is God sitting enthroned above the circle of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision. He goes into the temple and what does he see? He sees a king. He's on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train fills the entire temple. What a beautiful, powerful, wonderful vision of the majesty of God. And yet, have you noticed, there are those moments when for some reason we don't fully appreciate what's right before us. I'll never forget traveling one summer to the Grand Canyon. Now, how many of y'all have been to the Grand Canyon? Let's see, how many of y'all? Yeah, a lot of you have been to the Grand Canyon. We were living in Albuquerque at the time, and so we traveled several hours north. We'd been to the car a while, and finally we arrived there. Our boys were a little bitty at the time, and so we got out of the car, and I'll never forget, we walked up this rise, and as we walked up the rise, there before us was this awesome sight, the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is over 6,000 feet deep. That's over a mile deep at its widest it's 18 miles wide it's 277 miles long i'll never forget the response of our boys now understand they were quite young we stood there looking at this amazing sight for about a minute minute and a half boys looked at each other they looked at us and then they said can we go now we said, what oh we want to stay here just a second we want to look out and experience this wonderful sight. We, we stayed there toward the evening, and the sun began to set. And the canyon began to change all these beautiful colors. It was an amazing sight. But you see, our, our boys didn't quite appreciate all that they were seeing. And sometimes I, I worry just a little bit that we're kind of like that. 
And sometimes that's how we respond to God. Now there's a phrase that really kind of bookends our scripture reading that Al read a few moments ago. Verses 18 and 25. In verse 18, Isaiah says, With whom then will you compare God? It's a great question. With whom will you compare God? And then in verse 25, it's not Isaiah speaking. Now it's, it's God himself speaking about himself. And he asks a more personal question. He says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. And if we were to answer God's rhetorical question, we would say, no one, Lord. You are incomparable. And because this is true, you deserve all of our worship and all of our devotion and all of our attention. And yet, you know as well as I, right, that we're prone to distraction. My fear is that we become like little children standing in front of the Grand Canyon and we say, can we, can we go now? My, my fear is that there are distractions in both our lives and in the world, and because of that, we miss the beauty and the majesty of God. David Wells wrote a book several years ago called God in a Wasteland, and he uses this image to describe what our culture is like. He says that to many people, God is, is weightless. Think about that image, that metaphor. God is weightless. He writes this. He, meaning God, he rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. And then he continues. It is a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him to the periphery of our secularized life. And then Wells said, because that's how we view God, often in this culture, it has some pretty dramatic consequences for our nation. He writes, the untrue appears true, the bad passes itself off as good, and often the trivial masquerades as important. Think about that last line. I've been wrestling with that this week. The trivial masquerades itself as important. I look at my own life and think, how many times am I spending time and money and effort and attention on things that are ultimately pretty trivial? And yet it masquerades itself as important. Now, now certainly this is how the broader world views God, but what about us? Have we as Christians, disciples in America, become just as secularized as the rest of the world? You know, before I preach anything, I always talk with my wife about it. And I'll typically, you know, show her what I've written or I'll describe what I've written. And so right at this point in the sermon, Janice, she's been out of town, but I've been talking to her by phone. And, um, and so I, I was been sharing my sermon at this point. And right at this point, after she heard what I was going to say next, she said, Kevin, you sound a little negative here. Actually, her exact words were, you're not going to say that, are you? But, but I think I will, <laughs> because, because I, think, I, think it, I think we need to hear it. You see, the truth is, have we moved God to the margins? You see, often, if we're not careful, there's not an appreciable difference between, between God's people and, and the world. If we're not careful, we end up 
God's people end up worrying about, I end up worrying about the same things the world worries about. I end up spending my money like the world spends their money. I end up being, you know, using the same language that the world uses if we're not careful. And someone has said that really the, the major difference between Christians in America with people who are not Christians is that Christians go to church a bit more. And I don't want that to be true for us. And if it is, then, then Wells' language is, is truth. Then God becomes weightless to us. We acknowledge him, we kind of move him off to the edges, to the periphery. We, we nudge and nod to him occasionally, but honestly, is he heavy in our lives? Eugene Peterson, he makes a similar indicting statement regarding preachers. He wrote a book called The Contemplative Pastor, and I've read the book, and and there's this line in the book that the staff all knows because I've been talking about it incessantly because I've just been wrestling with this line. Eugene Peterson says this, the work of the pastor has been almost completely secularized except on Sundays. You see, what he means by that is that that preachers on Sundays, they stand and talk about God and teach about God and pray with people and act as if God is present and God is alive and God is real. And yet on Monday, oftentimes what preachers do, they act as if it's all up to them. It's like the old preacher used to say, we spend more time organizing than agonizing with God in prayer. And though preachers would never say this, it's almost like we do this. It's almost like on Monday, we escort God to the front of the church, out the door, and say, God, thank you very much for being with us. Glad you were here on Sunday, but thank you very much. We'll take it from here. And Peterson says when we do that, we become just as secular as anybody. God is weightless to us. Maybe instead of moving God to the edges of our lives, we do something else in regard to God. You see, Isaiah, he's such a wise minister. He knows us. Isaiah knows everybody worships. Oh, I know we like to think that, no, we're the ones who worship. And not everybody who worships. We were created to worship the Lord, and every person on the planet will worship. The question is not if we worship, but who or what we worship. You have some friends. They may never darken the door of a church, but I'll tell you what, they worship God. You have some, or they worship something. You have some people who say they don't even believe in God. That's okay. They're going to worship something or someone. You see, something or someone will receive your ultimate devotion, your ultimate passion. There is something or someone that you will, you will declare your ultimate allegiance to. Right after the question is asked in verse 18, with whom will you compare God? The fascinating thing is in verse 19, Isaiah begins a conversation about idolatry. What an interesting contrast. You have on the one hand the living, majestic God, the God who sits enthroned above the earth, And yet, on the other hand, you have this dead, lifeless idol. And Isaiah describes what 
how these idols are made. He, he talks about a goldsmith overlaying it with gold. He, he describes a, a metal worker casting it, and on and on he goes. And as we read verses like that, it sounds ancient and foreign to us. I doubt any of us would feel compelled after this service to go grab a hammer and, and pound out an image and then, then take it home and worship it. I doubt any of us would do that. But our temptation toward idolatry is much more subtle but no less empty. Tim Keller's definition of idolatry has really been meaningful to me. He writes, an idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Or let me say it like this. Idolatry is when good things become ultimate things. And Keller goes on to talk about how subtle this is and how damaging this is. We may not even think about the damage that idolatry does to our lives, but just, just think about this for a minute. Let me apply it in four or five ways. Marriage is a good thing, right? Isn't marriage a good thing? Let me, let me get our men to respond. Men, marriage is a great thing. Can I get an amen? Isn't marriage great? Yeah. But what happens when we make this good thing into an ultimate thing? It's then that we become emotionally dependent and jealous and controlling. You think ultimate joy can only be found in that relationship. In fact, there's some people who, who are so idolatrous, they'll say, well, I can't really be happy until I'm married. When you take that perspective, marriage then becomes your idol. Now understand, God gave us marriage to provide companionship and joy, and it's a wonderful thing. But, but ultimate joy is found in God what will happen if you center your whole life on your family and children? Now, at this point, I'm about ready to move from preaching to meddling. Well, you try to live your life through them is what you do. And you have a hard time, if your kids are your idols, you have a hard time letting them go. We raise our kids to release them, to launch them, but not to worship them as much as we love them. Work is a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. And if, if it does, we become workaholics. And, and when that happens, and we've seen this a lot, right? Men and women both will sacrifice everything for that job. Why? Because it's an ultimate thing. It's what you worship. You find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in that instead of God. You become a workaholic. You sacrifice other relationships. If it goes well, you feel great. If it does not go well, then you feel very despairing. What if money and possessions become your ultimate thing? You're eaten up with worry and jealousy. You'll, you'll be led to do unethical things to maintain a lifestyle. What if religion or morality becomes your idol? Well, if that happens, then if you succeed living up to the certain moral code that you think you should live up to, then you feel good and proud. In fact, you might even look down at others who aren't able to live up to that code. But if you're not able to live up to that code, if you're not able to keep all the rules, then you feel like, I'm so lost and horrible and hideous. Idolatry is turning good things into ultimate things. And friends, when we do this, it's not without consequence. It really isn't. 
And so where's the turn in this passage? What is this passage calling us to do? If I've identified the problem that if we, we move God to the periphery or we, we worship, he's in the very center, but we just worship some other false god or false idol, what's, what's God calling us to do in this passage? Well, in verse 26, Al didn't read it, but really it's the turn and it's the point and it's what I want to say today. God says this in verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. He says, don't, don't look down at the idol. Don't look inward at yourself. Don't look outward in comparison to others. No, he says, you, you look up to the heavens, look up to the starry host, and what do you see? You see the beauty and the splendor of all of creation, and you know that God sits enthroned. You know that God is above all of that. It's God that we're drawn to. It's God whom we're to worship now let's think for a second about our relationship with God, and I want to do something kind of odd. I want to compare our relationship with God to a balloon. And so, David, would you bring me one of those balloons? You know, really, that's right, thank you. You know, to keep, to keep a balloon aloft, you've got to do a couple of things. Uh, th- this, balloon, it's, this balloon is filled with uh, with breath, not my breath, but uh, Vicky's uh, breath. She prepared this balloon for me, so thank you very much. But to keep this thing aloft, you know, it's got breath in it. To keep it up, what you've got to do is kind of bat it. You've got to smack it, and you can do that. And a lot of people see that that's what church is about. We come to church on Sunday morning, and we, we need to get sort of smacked back into orbit. So we need to say, you know, the, and, in fact, the preacher, that's my role, is kind of, you know, smack us back up to doing right. Maybe that's one of the reasons why people don't like to be around preachers so much. I don't know. And so we come to church on Sunday, and the preacher says, give more. And the preacher says, you know, live for Christ more. The preacher says, stop doing that. The preacher says, you know, be more involved. And on and on and on, we've got to smack this thing to keep it, to keep it in, the, in the air. But there's another way to keep the balloon afloat. David, can I have that one, please? Another way to keep the balloon afloat is to fill it with something different. Is to fill the balloon with helium. You don't have to smack it. It just floats up. What is the helium in our spiritual life? I want to say the helium in our spiritual life is God. The helium in our spiritual life is a view of God. The helium of our spiritual life is understanding we serve one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, we serve a God who sits enthroned over the earth. We serve a God who came to the earth to die for us. We serve a God who now, as we accept him by faith, we repent of our sins and are baptized in Jesus' name, who comes to live in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And understand, when God fills us, when that's the helium, it lifts up to a whole new height. And it's then that we begin to soar. I don't know how we're going to get that down, but that's okay. Maybe every Sunday when you come into this space, you'll look up and you'll see that balloon and you'll understand that we're filled up with God. And as we're filled up with God, we don't have to be batted around. We don't have to be smacked around. Oh, no, we're filled up with God. It's then that we begin to soar. I love how Isaiah ends. Isaiah 40, 
Beginning in verse 30, 29, he gives strength to the weary. And he says in 30, even youth grow tired and weary. But he says in 31, those, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will what? They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow my brothers and sisters God is high and exalted and as we worship him and love him and adore him he fills us up and he lifts us up this morning if you're tired of religion because that's what religion is religion is this religion is I've got to be smacked up constantly held up constantly to, to soar but a relationship with God when he fills me up it's then it's then that I begin to soar this morning if you've not been soaring with the Lord this morning, if you're not filled up with the helium of the Holy Spirit, the helium of God this morning, if you would like to accept Jesus, then this is time, your time of invitation. We'll have a couple of shepherds in the back, and I'll be down front today. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and sing.